Welcome to the Mikvah.org podcast. Since 5735-1975, Mikvah.org has been providing tremendous resources for women across the globe in Taras Mishpacha. Now we present to you a podcast specifically for singles, bringing you all the curated topics as you prepare for your future role as a Kara Sabayas. We have many songs we record, I'm just kidding. Um, and I have two amazing people here tonight. We have Dr. Josh Klein. Um, jo- you know, Dr. Klein does a lot of different things. I know you have premium health, um, which is does all the whole gamut of fertility, IVF. Um, I just sent you a patient last week. Um, and whenever I know that a patient's going through, I'm like, oh, you're in good hands. I actually was a patient of Dr. Klein before you were in premium and before her extended fertility. And you were just such a mensch, and you were so kind, and you really took the time to listen, um, and you helped us, I don't know if you know, you helped us have our baby number two, Um, And so the journey towards having a child is, is long, and for everybody, it's different. And even if it looks the same, the facts are the same, primary fertility, secondary, single, whatever it is, um, for no two people go through it the same. And I think that's super important to remember, um, but don't assume how somebody else is approaching it. Um, don't expect yourself to go through it a certain way. It's everybody really, really has their own process. Um, when you look at some of the Rebbe's letters regarding um, fertility and what you have to do to build a family, um, something that stood out for us is that the, the Rebbe quotes the Fidic Rebbe and saying that you have to have a certain to build a family, to have children. Um, and I believe that it was in that context, it was talking about having a certain on the halak standpoint like doing things that are a little bit out of your box halakhically, like going through a surgical procedure to have children is, is a pretty huge deal, even halakhically. Um, so from a halakhic standpoint, you really need a good rug. That's, you know, having a good doctor, having a good rug is super, super important. Rabbi Brickman here um, was also with us on our journey from the very beginning. Um, having a good rug is really, really somebody to hold your hand. Rabbi Brickman is amazing. Uh, Rabbi Ullman in Australia helps a lot of, you know, a lot of people as well. Um, so just from my experience, I can tell you that having Mr. Snefish is not just from a luck standpoint. It's having it on an emotional standpoint, a physical standpoint, a financial standpoint. Um, to build a family, sometimes it really takes, you know, a lot of kishkes. Um, so before we go start with Dr. Josh Klein, um, somebody was going to share their personal story. And, um, and then we'll continue. Thank you so much. I found out about an hour ago. I'm sharing my personal story, so hopefully it won't be disjointed, but I'll try to give you a little quote. First of all, I want to applaud you for being here because that this is exactly how my journey started. When I froze my eggs, I'm still single. I, I'm not sure if this is only for single people or also for married people, but I was single. I was in my early 30s, and I realized that I needed to freeze my eggs, which was a bit of a taboo topic even a few years ago. Um, not all the organizations like Banel and Pua, ATAM, were at the time endorsing such things. And since then, come such a long way. Um, and it is now such common practice that so many people I know are doing it. And um, it's become very mainstream. And I want to point that out because when people think my mother's not telling me to do this, no one's telling me to do it. It's because 
they didn't know about it. It didn't exist in your mother's time. It didn't exist in your older sister's time. And um, it's only available to us now. So I want to point out how important it is for single older people um, to do, even if, please God, you're going to get married this year and have a baby this year, um, that, that even if we're talking for your second or third child, um, it's something that's so important. I was dating at the time. I'd been dating a guy for a while. Um, when I froze my eggs, as, as you see, it did not work out. And I am still, I'm very grateful now that I did it. Um, for me, what it gave me was just such a sense of security for anyone with it, any kind of anxiety. It gives you that kind of sense of um, you're not chasing time. Like time is not controlling your life anymore. Um, so that's from a single standpoint. And that's who I think I'm talking to. Um, when I asked, so I was very lucky when I went through it that I had friends doing it at the same time as me. And that was huge. Having a support system for, for me and I know for everyone else um, who I know went through it was a major. Um, you speak to the doctors and they pay it down a little bit. Thank you, Dr. Kine. I want to extend for telling me. <laughs> and they pay it down. It's not a big deal. It, it is quite an undertaking. <laughs> and it's going to take up a month of your life. You need to put aside the emotional and mental, physical space in your life for a month to be able to do it. Um, but the good thing is that when I try to recall the details now, I can't recall them, which means it was not so traumatic. <laughs> um, and I kind of got over it. So um, setting aside time that you know that you you don't have anything pressured in your life, um, I think was important. And having some kind of support system. I was super lucky that I had two other friends who were doing it at the same time as me. So it was really, really helpful. Um, you know, the, the ones who were scared to get shots helped the ones who were not and um, were helped by the ones who were not and um, the ones and we just supported each other in different ways. I know that not everyone um, has that luxury, but um, I would say at least having someone know that you're going through it is super important because you you do need someone to fall back on um, at does mess with your emotions. So having someone in your life um, to do that, to just speak speak it out with is super important. And I want to give a big shout out to Eric. Mm. Um, um, I know so many of my friends um, who have gone to, but she is always there. If you're too scared to give yourself shots, she will help you find someone or do it herself. Um, if you're not sure what order to do things or how to do things, she will walk you through it and she has the calmest presence and um, she is such a great resource. So if you don't have anyone else in your life, please use her. Um, and um, one more thing that I wanted to add and I hope I mentioned everything else um, that I want to do is that um, another hurdle is that, and I'm sure someone will speak about this, is that you should, you need to find a rug before you start this journey. And not once you're already in the middle of the journey, things come up along the way. And if you don't have a rug from the beginning, that's when things could get very complicated. So it's important to, to ask a rug um, beforehand so that you have that go-to person um, when you need it. Um, that's a big hurdle. That's another thing in the way of you going and getting this done. 
So I highly, so what I did is when I came to an evening like this, I went up to Rabbit Brookman at the end of the evening and I said, and I asked him if he'll be my rabbi and if he gives me permission. And and, and that's it, I, I ran from there. Like it was another thing out of the way. So um, whatever things you can get out of the way to make the next step easier, I highly recommend doing that. And uh, um, if you have any specific questions, I'm happy to answer them. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for time. Um, so I just want to end off um, with a brock up to all of you. Um, lately in Williamsburg, where I work, I'm having new mothers, not new mothers, but new pregnancies coming in at like 47, 48 years old. So I'm blessing all of you that um, that you should never need any frozen eggs and you should be able to naturally become pregnant at whatever age it's it's right for you guys. Um, but if you need it, like you said, it's an insurance policy and it's there for you. Um, and everybody should the journey to your you know to building a family should not be so difficult. <laughs> um, it should be smoothly. So now I'm going to um, open the floor for Dr. Klein. Um, I love that he has Extend Fertility, which is specifically geared for fertility preservation, which makes it so fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. My voice is loud. Do the microphone to the matter, or do you think it's okay? Okay. Leave it on. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for asking me to participate tonight. Um, first of all, I want to thank Irit. Um, doesn't hear me, but um, she's a powerhouse. I've known her for a number of years now, and she really is passionate about the subject and generally about helping people. Um, and she really deserves a lot of credit for, for doing the work that she does. Um, and uh, also Mrs. Kleiman, Esther Kleiman, um, from the Bonion angle, uh, helping people every day. I know, um, really dedicated, passionate, and um, you get the unsung heroes. You know, I get occasionally uh, some credit. I'm not sure how much credit you get, so you deserve more. And Esty, thank you for the introduction. Also, um, it's a it's a real comfort to be um, sort of sitting with Rory Rickman, who I've known for many years now. Actually, I haven't seen in a long time, but um, thank you for uh, for asking me to join. So I'm going to try to be brief, but I do want to be and the way I try to organize this topic is the following, and, I, and this is sort of a miniature version of what I usually do with a patient who walks in the door and sits down to have an increasing consultation. And what's important, I think, in the way I see it is that before you talk about egg freezing, and we will talk about egg freezing, it's important to understand the, the it's like the gears of the, of, the, of the machine, which is to say egg freezing is a thing because age and fertility is a thing, right? Meaning that's the problem is age hurts fertility. And one of the strategies to help manage that problem is to freeze eggs. So what I think is useful is to unpack in what way is age a challenge? Um, and by understanding that in more detail, we can better understand also in what way egg freezing can be helpful. And it also helps highlight some of the limitations. Egg freezing is not a perfect solution. So. The first point I always emphasize is that um, female fertility does decline with age. And by the way, to say for the record, men are not exempt from the aging story, just to be very clear. Um, in general, age is not a friend to anybody's fertility, including men. 
but it does affect fertility differently. So a man in his 40s, if he's otherwise healthy, we're not severely worried about his fertility. A woman in her 40s, even if she's super healthy, it's definitely statistically going to be an issue that needs to be considered. Um, and that is founded in the biology. The biology is different. So men are born with no sperm at all, and they start making sperm at puberty, and then they're always making new sperm. Um, and so that's why even an older guy has sperm, if he's healthy, that might be viable. Whereas a woman is born, or a girl is born with the eggs that she's going to have for her whole lifetime, and those eggs stay inside her, and the aging process affects those eggs. So it's a different biology between the male and female side, but males are not exempt. So men don't get a free pass in terms of age. It's not purely a female issue. Having said that, so in what way does age affect a woman's eggs? Meaning, what does it mean that her fertility potential goes down? So actually, one thing I always try to emphasize is that it's specifically the eggs as opposed to the rest of the biology. So if a woman is 50 and has younger eggs, um, whether she froze her eggs when she was, you know, in her 30s and is now trying to have a baby at 50, and that might not be the best plan for other reasons, but just go with me for a moment. Um, if a woman has younger eggs and wants to have a baby at 50, if she's generally in good health, it's actually not the most tremendous challenge to help a 50-year-old get pregnant if you have younger eggs to use. And by the way, that happens all the time, and it has been happening, I don't say all the time, but relatively commonly in the world of fertility for decades now, but in the version of egg donor, right? Like a 50-year-old who wants a baby, if they walk into a clinic, they'll say, okay, here's a catalog of egg donors. They're all younger women who are willing to donate their eggs, and you can get some younger eggs and fertilize them with the guy of your choice, and then make an embryo, put that embryo in your 50-year-old womb, and that works most of the time. So the point being that if you're freezing eggs, it does, as, as we just said, it does relieve uh, to some degree some of the time pressure because if you freeze eggs at 30 or 35 or, or even 40, whether you use those eggs at 40 or 45 or even 50 isn't actually all that different. Your body retains the ability in a similar way to accept an embryo or a pregnancy uh, regardless of the aging factor, if the age of the eggs is held constant. So it's really the age of the, it's specifically the eggs that are the aging problem. So that's point number one, it's, a, it's about the eggs. Point number two is how do eggs change as a woman gets older? What's different about a woman's eggs today than they were five years ago? What's going to be different about them five years from now? In what way are they getting older? And the answer is there's two dimensions of the change in the eggs over time. Um, one is quality, the health of the eggs, and the other is quantity, which is the number of eggs remaining. Egg quality is not what most people think. It's not like your eggs are inside you and when you're you know, 20, they're like young and fresh and strong and that somehow in very slow motion every day, they're getting like a little bit more softer, a little bit more wrinkled, a little more spoiled. And by the time you're 40, they're like these wrinkled, sad eggs. And that's not the right way to think about it. Eggs are cells that carry DNA, and their job in the universe is to carry your genetic program to your potential offspring. And so when we say an egg is good or an egg is bad, it's really best expressed as an egg is normal or it's abnormal. A normal egg has the right amount of DNA. An abnormal egg has had a gain or a loss of DNA that has now turned into an abnormal one. So when we say that egg quality changes slowly over time, which is true, it's not that all of the eggs are getting a tiny bit worse every day but rather every day, some of the eggs go from the good team to the bad team. They have a breakage in a chromosome, a breakage in, in their DNA component that causes them to go from normal to abnormal. And so when we talk about egg quality and how it changes over time, it's really just math. 
it's a percentage of all the eggs in your in your inventory, the percentage of them that are healthy versus the percentage of them that are not healthy. When you're born, 100% are healthy. In your 20s, that percentage is very high healthy and very low unhealthy, like 80 or 90% healthy and 10 or 20% unhealthy. By your mid-30s, that ratio starts to approximate 50-50, half good and half bad. And by a woman's mid-40s, by age, let's say 45, it's probably 90% are unhealthy. Now, that sounds discouraging in a certain way that 90% of the eggs are bad, but that's at age 45. It's not an easy time to have children. But what it also highlights is that a good egg is still good even when you're older, right? So, and that's why it's not impossible for women to get have children as they get older, it just gets statistically harder. Uh, because remember, women ovulate one egg every month and it's a random one. So basically when you put these ideas together, the reason why it's supposed to be easy to get pregnant in your 20s is because most of your eggs are good and you get one random one every month. And so almost every month you get a good egg to work with. It's as simple as that. It's just math. In any given month, it's like a 90% chance you're going to get a good egg to work with. And that's why it's supposed to be easy unless there's something else going on. The reason why it's supposed to be hard to get pregnant in your 40s is because there may be an 80 or 90% that's a bad egg. Or in any 10 months, eight or nine out of the 10 are going to be bad eggs. And so it's really just this math issue of um, how easy or hard will it be to find a good egg? Without a good egg, it's impossible to have a healthy pregnancy. So that's the, the definition of egg quality, and it's universal for age, meaning there's no exceptions to the rule. Women in their 20s always have mostly healthy eggs. There's no uh, such thing as a woman who's in her 20s and has old eggs in the sense that they're mostly bad ones. Even if she's not a healthy person in general, her eggs are going to be mostly healthy. But every woman in her 40s has mostly bad eggs, even if she's a super healthy person, we know that that's true too. And attached to that is that there's no test that exists for egg quality. Okay? So egg quality, the only way we can judge egg quality is age. But it's a good way to judge because, as I just said, there's no real exceptions to the rule. So that's one half of the story is egg quality. It's an age-based thing, and there's no testing for it. The other half of the story is egg quantity, which basically means that a woman is born with her lifetime supply of eggs. That's how it works. And those eggs are dying off. Every day, some of them are dying. A few until eventually every woman will run out of eggs. We have a name for that. It's called menopause. Menopause is when a woman stops having menstrual cycles because she has no more ovulation, because she has no more eggs left to ovulate. It's like a full tank at birth and an empty tank at menopause. But the interesting thing that we've learned in the last couple of decades about egg quantity is that it's not universal for age. So egg quality is the same story for everybody of a given age. Egg quantity, you could be luckier for your age or unluckier for your age, mostly based on things that we don't know why. So in other words, there are many women in their late 30s or early 40s that actually have a higher egg supply, even though they're reproductively older. There are also many women who are in their late 20s or early 30s that actually have a low egg supply, even though they're reproductively younger. And so that is something that is different from person to person that we can't just assume based on age. But conveniently, that's something that for which there is testing. So egg supply testing or egg quantity testing has become a relatively common practice in the last decade or so. And to keep it straightforward, the simplest, uh, imperfect, but the simplest test of egg quantity is AMH, the blood test AMH. AMH is a hormone that is a reflection of the egg reserves of the egg supply. Um, and so, and it's just a regular blood test. You could get it, you certainly get it at any fertility clinic, but you can get it at an OBGYN or even a primary care doctor if they're willing to, to send it. Um, it doesn't cost a lot. It's, usually insurance will cover it. If it doesn't, it might cost $50 to $100 out of pocket. 
Um, but it tells us a lot because it basically can reveal if you have a particularly low or a particularly high or an average egg supply for your age. There are some things that can make AMH a less reliable uh, test, like birth control, for example, can make the test results harder to interpret. So there are some details about AMH that I'm not going to get into right this second. But as a starting point for, for learning and discussion and consideration, AMH is a very helpful uh, thing to, 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 to start with. Um, okay. So as I said, there's two dimensions to how eggs change over time. There's egg quality and egg quantity. Quality is the percentage of eggs that are healthy versus not, and it's universally an age-based thing. Quantity is the amount of eggs you have left, and that's something that you could be lucky or unlucky for your age. So um, how does that all connect with egg freezing? Well, the idea of egg freezing, of course, is that we know that over time, both of those things get worse, right? Meaning there's an increasing percentage of the eggs that are bad, and of the pile of eggs that are available is shrinking. And so when you put those two things together, they compound each other, meaning it's a double whammy effect. As a woman gets older, both of those things are going in the wrong direction. Um, and so of course the egg freezing idea is that if you know you probably wanna have a family when you're in a position to have a family, but that's not today, and you want to do something proactively to sort of protect against the possibility that by the time you want to have children, you may be having a hard time, or as you said before, maybe a second child or a third child, you can take some of your today eggs and put them away for future use. Having said that, and this is important to know as well, um, if we just took one egg out of a woman's body, and by the way, egg freezing would be a lot simpler if we would do it one egg at a time, because then we could skip all the shots, basically. Um, Normally, your body lets one egg grow every month if you have cycles. Some people don't have cycles, separate story. Most people have cycles, that means an egg grows every month. So we could just say, okay, let the egg grow. And then when it's ready, we'll take it out and freeze it. And we could do that, actually. That would be like a natural version of egg freezing. Why don't we do it that way? Why do we torture people with all the injections? Um, because, well, let me explain. So the reason that we use medications for an egg freezing process is because of the following. Let's say we did that. We took a woman is 35 years old. So I would say, you know, roughly half her eggs are good and half her eggs are bad. We take one out with the procedure and we freeze it. So if we ask a simple question, mathematically, that frozen egg, now we're going to fast forward five years, 10 years, whatever. What's the chance if we take that one egg, take it out of the liquid nitrogen and try to fertilize it and make a baby out of it? What's the chance we're going to be successful? Ooh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for uh, audience participation. Seventy percent from that one egg. Okay. Who else? So you're already modifying and in, 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 a, in a generally true direction. But let's stick with the simple question. One egg. Give me a number. Fifty percent. Thirty. It's like an auction. Thirty percent. Twenty-five. It's in the Yiddish. Uh, going once, going twice. Okay, so the answer is actually a 35-year-old, because that actually matters. But for a 35-year-old, it's probably about 8 or 9% for one egg. So the chance of success per egg is not high. Even if it was a 25-year-old, which the, the chance is a little bit higher, maybe it's 12% per egg, okay? So for each egg, there's only a low chance of success. And if you say to me, that sounds terrible, and why is it so low? Well, the answer is basically because of a few things. Number one, when we take eggs out of a woman's body, 
just like your body doesn't know how to pick out good ones to ovulate, right? I said before that you ovulate one random one. And so if you're younger, you're mostly good just by chance. If you're older, the mostly bad, also just by chance. So we're definitely not smarter than, than the body. And so when we take one out of the uh, out of a woman's ovaries to freeze, we don't know how to pick a good one. We just get the one, right? Or if we get more than one, it's whatever we get, we get. So if we only took one, and this 35-year-old, let's just say half of her eggs are bad, because that's the background biology, right off the bat, there's a 50-50 chance that the one we took was bad, right? So we already went from 100% success down to 50% success before we even got started, okay? So now that, okay, well, 50 is very different than, you know, eight or whatever I said before. So why, where do you go for, how do you go from 50 to eight? Well, the answer is because then technology is great, but it's not that great. And so there's a lot of steps that have to all happen correctly for that egg to become a baby. The egg has to survive the freezing process, which in the best labs, it's 85 to 90% survival, but not hundred. If it does survive, it has to then fertilize when you stick it together with a sperm cell, which most of the eggs will fertilize, but not all of them. If it does fertilize, it has to grow into an embryo in the laboratory, which maybe half of them will do that, but not all of them. And if you do have an embryo and you return it to the woman's body, it doesn't always implant. It doesn't always achieve a pregnancy. Not every embryo transfer is successful. And even if it doesn't implant, you could still have a miscarriage. It's not unheard of at all. And so if any of those things go bad, then game's over for that if you only have one egg, right? So one the Per egg live birth rate when it comes to egg freezing, and by the way, it's not that different than regular IVF. If you only have one egg, if someone's doing IVF and they're trying to get pregnant, one egg is a bad place to start. So because of the fact that the per egg live birth rate, practically speaking, is low, that's why egg freezing becomes a process where we use medications to stimulate the simultaneous growth of a whole bunch of eggs. And if you say, uh, how many? The answer is, some degree, the more the merrier, meaning more eggs is generally going to, each egg is an independent chance. More chances are better than less chances. Um, and so there is a point at which it's too much is too much. It can be unhealthy to, to overstimulate. But if we can get 10, we'll take 10. If we can get 20, we'll take 20. If we get 30, we'll take 30. More than that starts to be a little bit on the high side. Um, so, so the medications that do this job, because naturally your body only wants to give you one at a time, the medications that do this job are all those injections that go into the process of egg freezing. Um, but we always try to get everybody as many eggs as we can. And yet, practically, um, some people do egg freezing and they get 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 eggs at a time, and that's great. And some people barely get one or two or three, and that's not so great. So who gets two and who gets 22? Is it just like, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset? The answer is no, it's predictable. It's predictable to a large degree based on your egg supply because women with a higher egg supply that means that their ovaries are more robust, they have more eggs available, and if we give them the medicine, they're more likely to, to grow multiple eggs at one time. When with a lower egg supply, they're more likely to only have a few grow. And so AMH is a really helpful uh, piece of information in these two ways. Number one, it gives us a picture of where they're holding in general, right? Is their egg supply, like it's like the, the gas tank, where are they holding in terms of running out of eggs? If someone's holding very low, that's important information to know, especially if they're younger, because that means they're likely to run out of eggs at an earlier than average age. Whereas if someone's holding very high, that doesn't take care of all the problems, but it's, it's, it's helpful to know that, that their egg supply is good. But number two, more practically, it helps us counsel patients to have realistic expectations around what's a likely yield if they go through the egg freezing process. Um, and that's generally helpful to have realistic expectations. It also helps us as the doctors 
because sometimes things don't go the way we expect, right? If I see a patient and based on their testing, I think they're going to get 25 eggs in the egg freezing cycle. And then we start the process and then there's only three eggs growing. So based on the fact that I knew I was expecting 20 plus, we're going to talk about that, right? Because maybe this is a bad month. Maybe we're using the wrong protocol. Maybe something's off and we might stop and reset and reconsider. Whereas if we knew nothing and just you get what you get, okay, three is three. I guess it didn't work out, you know? So, so it's it's very helpful in the in the forum of egg freezing to have an idea realistically of what you get out of the process, um, and I think it's helpful for people who are looking into it. So that then I think is a good segue into that part of the conversation. Which if you're just if you are just a regular woman who's not ready to have a family yet, and you're thinking, do I need to get tested? Do I need to do this? How do you think about it? Well, my basic commentary is there's never going to be like <laughs> I don't think. You know, you wake up in the morning and someone slipped a note under your door, like today's the day. Go get your eggs frozen, right? So you have to say, okay, I I want to I want to take a proactive step into looking into this. What at what age? There's no rule to that. Now we don't go around to college campuses and say 21 year olds should worry about egg freezing, mainly because most women at 21 have lots of eggs left and they have their whole life in front of them, and they by the time you know half of them will be married, you know, by the time they're 30 or something, so they have time. But anyone who's late 20s or older. If they want to be proactive, it's not crazy to start looking into it. The easiest thing is to get an AMH. Why? Because if your AMH is already low, if you're younger, you might want to do it at a younger than average age. Meaning if you're 28 and you have a great AMH, it well, actually, let me say it this way. There's an inherent tension between uh, two things. The younger you are when you, if someone does it, the younger you are when you do it, the better of a yield that you would get on egg freezing. Why? Because younger women tend to get more eggs on average, and of the eggs that you get, they tend to get more healthy ones. So it's a double whammy in the in the positive direction that you're going to get more eggs and more healthy eggs, and therefore more likely that these eggs are going to work if you need them. But the acuity of the need to do it is lower, right? Because if you're 28 with a good AMH, Okay, maybe I'll wait a year, right? Like you're only 28, you have a good AMH, there's no emergency. And that's true, actually, right? So, so for a 28-year-old with a good AMH, the yield will be great. The, they'll get lots of good eggs, but it's not such a pressured situation. So maybe, I mean, that's that becomes a, obviously a choice of 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 you know uh how proactive you want to be. A 42-year-old who has a low AMH. For them, they may only get you know two, three, four, five eggs, and that's a very low yield. And of the eggs they get, there's a high likelihood they're going to be not healthy eggs. So the yield that they're going to get is very low. I mean, the statistical chance of success is not zero, by the way, but it's it's low. But the acuity of the need is very high, right? Because if they don't do it, they're already sort of in a very tenuous situation because of their age and because of their age. So there's this inherent tension of when things are good then you'll get a lot out of it, but you don't really need to do it so urgently. When things are bad, you'll, you'll, you need to do it urgently, but they're already bad, right? So that, that's why the challenge becomes at what point, what's the middle ground, right? At what point is it important enough to consider to do it, but you're still going to get something very good out of it, uh, not too early, not too late. That's the, like the, why this whole um, decision-making is so slippery because it, it, it's, like I said, there's never a day that, okay, I crossed the line, today I got to do it. Doesn't work like that. So you just kind of have to say in your head that this is an important thing, maybe the most important thing in my life. And I'm going to say, maybe I could, you know, I'm going to meet the guy tomorrow and then I won't worry about it, but maybe I won't. And also, like, like uh, I, 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 I'm so embarrassed, but I don't remember your first name, the one who shared the story. Me. 
Maybe. Maybe. Right. So you mentioned that maybe it's for a second child, a third child. And that's actually, especially in the firm world, that's a very realistic thing to keep in mind. People usually aren't, you know, just aiming to have one, one child and, and be done. And, and God blesses them to, to have the family that they want. So, um, so I think that's a good way to think about the, how do you approach the decision-making is it, there's no like, uh, once you turn X, that's what you should do it. Or that's when you should look into it. It really depends on how, you, how you're thinking about your life and how, how proactive you want to be about approaching it. But at a minimum, if you're even thinking about it a little bit, you can get yourself at least checked because, again, if you check your inmates and it's low, that might change your way of thinking. Okay, um, I'm going to try to stop talking in a couple of minutes, but just to address one other issue, which is from a process perspective. So if someone decides I want to consider doing this, how does this work? Very briefly, um, the way we do it at Extend, which different clinics will do it a little differently, but basically it's the same idea. We usually have people get an AMH and actually, if they can, an ultrasound in advance to get some data points before we even have a conversation. So that gets done first. Then you meet with the doctor or nurse practitioner to have the egg freezing consultation, which is basically some version of this discussion plus a more detailed discussion of your personal situation. How old are you? What is your AMH and what are your goals? And you know how are you thinking about it? Um, and then after that, you know, basically the balls in your court in terms of do you want to go ahead or not. If you decide you want to go ahead, so there's usually some prep that can take a week or two or three, but it's not like it takes that long, really. You have to get some basic blood work done. Every clinic has what they call a checklist, which is like a required list of HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, uh, some very basic blood testing you need to accomplish. They're going to want to do a, some version of a med medication teaching session to teach you how to use those injections most people try to do it on their own. Um, and so we need to make sure you know what you're doing with the needles and all that stuff. Um, there's always some version of a consent form that you need to review, like any medical procedure. Um, and then basically you're ready to start. The actual thing typically starts with a period. If you don't get regular periods, there's ways we can get started if you're not stuck like in limbo land forever. But for most people who do have something of a, of a, of a regular-ish period, we say, Call us when you get your the first day of your period. Most fertility clinics operate basically seven days a week. Obviously, Shabbos you're going to avoid, but point is even Sundays, most fertility clinics are operating. And um, you come in and get checked with an ultrasound and a blood test before you start any medicine at the beginning of the cycle. The reasoning for that is because some months there's some red flags. This is going to be a bad month. There's a cyst or the hormone levels are off or whatever. So before we start you on, on the journey of, of doing all the shots, we want to make sure you're starting off from a good point. Typically, monitoring appointments like that are quick, 20, 30 minutes, and they're early morning. So we open at 7 a.m. Uh, every day. And those quick appointments are between 7 and 10 every day. And you get checked, and then you run off to your day. And by the afternoon, we review the results, and then we tell people, okay, you know, the, usually a nurse would call and say, Dr. Klein, look at your results, and he wants you to start the medication tonight, and they specify the dose. And at that point, you're off and running. At that point, it's typically eight to 12 nights of shots. It's usually two shots a night to begin with, and then it becomes three shots a night for the last three days. And during those eight to 12 nights of shots, you're being asked to come in and get checked about every other day. So it's maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven visits, something like that. So it's intense for that week and a half, but it's also somewhat quick because it's mostly about a week and a half. And Every time you come in, you're being checked again, ultrasound, blood test, and we're seeing how the eggs are growing, how many are growing, how fast are they growing, and we also uh, adjust the medication as we need. 
And then we can identify when they're ready to come out. When they're ready to come out, we schedule the procedure, the egg retrieval procedure to take them out. Um, that's done under anesthesia. So you have an anesthesiologist who puts an IV in your arm. And when we're ready to start, they, um, they put the medicine in the IV and you fall asleep. It feels like you just blink your eyes and when you open them, you're done. But really you sleep for about 10 or 15 minutes. You don't feel anything, you don't remember anything. The way we remove the eggs from a woman's body is with a very thin, long needle transvaginally. So using an ultrasound, uh, an internal ultrasound to guide the needle. So there's no cutting, there's no stitches, there's no incision, there's no scar. When you wake up, you don't see anything. Usually you feel kind of crampy when you wake up and they give people pain medicine to make sure they're okay. But that's basically the process. And then you hang out in the recovery area for another 45 minutes or an hour, depending on how you're feeling, and then you go home. And that's it. So it's basically plus and minus about two weeks of intensiveness, nightly injections, more than one, and then a lot of these quick early morning appointments and then capped off by the procedure. I'll just not forget to mention Hashkapa, which is something that, that you know, you ask your of, but most of them would, would say it's an important thing, which is to have someone in the lab who uh, at any time will uh, offer that as a service to send someone into the lab to, to verify that your eggs are your eggs. Obviously, the clinics are pretty careful about that, but to have sort of an extra level of, of confirmation that uh, your eggs are your eggs. And once they're frozen, it happens a few hours later, they put a seal on it so that they can't be tampered with without the presence of an observer. Um, okay, that's the process. And I should probably stop talking. So um, I don't know, what's the transition now? Rory Rickman, do you want to make some commentary or, or is it questions or do you want to say, address some of the things? Okay. If anyone wants to ask questions, I could collect them and we could send them out. Rebecca, if you want to, Rebecca, do you want to touch on any common issues, Shabbos, lads, shots, like if some of what are the basic pitfalls? Yeah. 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 Hi, good evening. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm here is, of course, uh, Dr. Klein. I Get regards and send regards on a regular basis, almost. I usually tell tell the couples, usually it's couples, um, don't get put off by his looks. Uh, <laughs> I know it sounds like he just graduated high school, looks like he graduated high school in June, but his knowledge and his experience is a lot more than that. So don't, don't get put off by it. Uh, but I certainly will never say no to Mrs. Kleinman. And uh, even if I wanted to say no, you can say, no to Miss Lang, right? <laughs> because you'll never hear the end of it. And uh, so therefore, thank you very much for, for doing what you're doing because um, as, as I mentioned before that, um, the previous never mentioned that to have children, you have to have Mrs. Nefesh. And uh, I've had this um, discussion and debate uh, for many, many hours with uh, numerous people who, have debated the whole the whole field of scientific intervention in in fertility treatments and fertility preservations. And I challenged them, I said, why do you interpret the Rebbe's interpretation to say that the Mr. Snefish is on the couple or on the woman or on the man? Why isn't it on the rough? Yes, I understand it's challenging your quote unquote discussions. It's challenging it. Maybe they're going to call you that you're you're not following the, the, the protocol or the teachings. Yes, I understand that. I'm willing to take that risk. But the Mr. Stafford doesn't just believe, 
belong or or to be directed at at the individual people who are going through the process, but maybe it means those who are guiding as well. So that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I pay premiums every month to my insurance company. I have fire and theft and auto insurance. I never plan to have an accident. I hope I don't have a fire or a theft, but yet I'd rather my insurance broker receive commissions off what I'm doing rather than God forbid need it and not have it. And this is the way I look at what you're doing here tonight. It's, it's an insurance policy. Hopefully you will never need to use it actually. It'll be either frozen, you'll pay the, the um, and it's, I do understand it's cost you pay the, 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 uh, the, the um, okay. annual fee to store, store it and, and to seal it, whatever else it takes. But you will keep it there and one day you'll say, you know what, let me call it up, how do I discard it? under supervision. So that's what I hope you all do. Certainly, it's a great Mr. Snefesh and very brave of all of you to come here because most couples, as challenging as it is, they still have someone to go through 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 the process together with. Whereas you are here doing this all alone and sometimes maybe not even extended family supporting you or even direct family supporting it. I'm not just talking about financial support. I'm talking about emotional and spiritual and physical support that, that's necessary for this process. But yet, I do believe that um, we judge history or we could study history by looking at halakhic processes. And if you look at the last 40 years, 50 years, or since the 60s, you'll see halakh responsa as a rule, is dealing with scientific, specifically medical issues that have been advanced since, since the 60s, beginning with, with uh, organ transportation, uh, transplantation, beginning end of life issues, and then going on to, uh, and there was a time where the biggest posthum of our generation said that a bypass surgery is forbidden in the beginning, because the chances of, of being a, having a successful, a successful open heart surgery at the time was not what it is today. And therefore they felt that it shouldn't be done. Certainly you're going to get, I'm, not, I'm going to, as I said, be open. You're going to get pushback sometimes by many who say uh, that what you're doing is improper halakhically or, or, or spiritually, whatever it is. I, I'm not in agreement. I certainly, and that's otherwise I wouldn't be here. I certainly believe that, that we have uh, the opportunity. Hashem gave us these tools and the professionals who are able to do it, he's giving us the tools to help ourselves. And we should use the, the modern technology available to us to use it out properly. Of course, as mentioned before, um, get proper halakhic guidance at ground zero. Otherwise, God forbid, you will have I don't say you might have, you will have a disaster here sooner or later, whether it coincides with a Shabbos problem or with a, God forbid, should it be a mix-up problem. Anytime you get on a flight, you will hear the, the, the pilot say flight attendants cross-check, which means that's their internal um, safety measure to cross-check each other. And every lab and every clinic does have their own internal cross-checks, I'm sure, to check and make sure that there is no mix-up. Nobody, nobody wants that. A does want to do that to their clients or to their reputation. So certainly there is 
internal precautions that are taken. Nevertheless, halakhically, we have our own independent, halakhic required, um, separate pair of eyes to watch and to seal, to make sure that there is no mix-up. And I do have first-hand information of um, what I always thought is halakhic theory, where I have a young man, today he has a PhD in one of the sciences, and he told me he found a sister. Not Jewish, tells me she's not Jewish. She lives in California, and he got together with her. And being that he's a scientist himself, he, he did some more research and he found his father. Uh, this technology that we are discussing over here today is, I believe, only since about the year 2000. So it's, it's really, really cutting edge and really, really new. Even as uh, IVF and fertility treatments were available since the late 70s, and in the United States, more became more common in the 90s, uh, we still couldn't preserve fertility for, for single individuals. But once it did become in, in, uh, available, some companies actually actually encouraged it. I think major corporations like Google and, uh, and Apple were even paying to some of their employees to commit to, to work with for them for, for 10, 10, 15 years, sign a contract, and we'll pay for your family building um, time later on after you finish this project. We believe that we have other reasons to, to have children, not just to delay it because we want to, but rather because we have uh, uh, a mitzvah. And I don't have a mitzvah. Culturally, we are family-centric. Everything is sur surrounding the family. And, and not having that is truly a great challenge. And hopefully, as I want to give you all the blessing that you should never use this, you should use it as a precaution and never really need it. Before you come around to actually using it, you will all be having your own built families in a natural blessed way. Uh, we're going to have a few questions. And then if anybody else wants to ask, do you want to move in? And then we can come in our address to you, and then we can part First question that I see here, um, what are the side effects during the process? Mood swings, pain, nausea. I'm sorry, I say a certain bracha every morning. Which therefore means I can't feel and I can't answer that question, but maybe maybe Dr. Klein will be able to uh, address that from experience. Still on, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a good question. What are the what are the negative effects? What are the side effects? Um, the medications that we use to get the eggs to grow are hormones. They're not the same hormones that are in birth control. Um, which some people, I think, immediately think hormones, that's usually the, the hormones that they're most familiar with, estrogen and progesterone. We don't give people usually estrogen and progesterone. They're synthetic versions of the hormones that are produced normally in the brain that communicate with the ovaries to get eggs to grow. So there are hormones called FSH and LH. Having said that, when eggs grow, they do make estrogen and progesterone. So there is a rise in those hormones. Bottom line is that I'd say most women don't feel miserable, but probably a third of women do get some version of side effects. The most common side effects are things that would sort of generally be termed hormonal, which is to say either 
feeling a headache, feeling lymphous, bloating is probably the number one most common side effect. Um, uh, feeling tired, feeling hot, feeling cold. So what we generally say is it's very variable, right? It's I'm sorry, waking. It's a good good question. Also, that comes up a lot. So the answer is it's not uncommon that we will gain a few pounds during the process. But generally speaking, it's not because they're getting fat, right? Like it's not it's not true weight. It's more water weight because they retain water because of the hormone treatment. Um, so it's not uncommon to gain a few pounds. Usually that's a quick on and a quick off situation. So within a few days or maybe a week, I don't know if you want to comment uh, on the side effects also. Something else I wanted to say. I just forgot it. Yeah. Yeah, you were just a little bit of, oh, and I just thought of that. You kind of stop exercising while you're in that period. You're not allowed to exercise. So, and then it also messes with your exercise schedule and then you're feeling that you yak and your blood. But you just need to remember that you just go home and I kind of felt like it was it was like a forbearing of what you're like when you're pregnant. Like I was outside, I, I'm vomiting on the street, and the guy's passing up. She's before pregnant. I'm like, no, I'm just doing treatment. You know? uh, <laughs> so I wasn't going to say yeah, but like um, moodiness. Some yeah. people have anxiety, um, tired, all that, or like the early pregnancy, possibly. Like yeah. That, so. Can people take anything for that? Yes and no. I mean, it, it's it's something for some things. Yes, for some things it's hard. Really, I mean, ultimately, it's basically if you get side effects, it's a short, relatively short term, and you kind of just basically bear through it. Yeah, usually. So again, you're on medications eight to twelve days. The first two, three, four, five days, most of the time, is not a big deal because it hasn't really, as as Ms. Sun just said, not hasn't really kicked in. So you're really talking about like the latter half, where if someone's going to get side effects, it really becomes an issue. And then they usually dissipate within a day or two or three after the procedure. So it could be a week, it could be 10 days. And, you know, it's not, we, what I was going to say before is that you usually get, someone kind of said it, actually, I think you said it, that try, you know, if you have a family wedding, right, or if you have something big going on at work or whatever, that's probably not the best month of your life to do egg freezing because you don't know how you're going to feel. You might feel fine. I'm not making this up. There's someone who goes through and I thought it was going to be the worst, worst experience of my life. And it was like, totally fine. I've heard that many times. So some people just breeze right through it, but you don't know if you're one of those people. So usually dedicate uh, in a in a cycle in a month where you know you don't have a ton going on and just expect the worst and hope for the best. And then usually land somewhere in the middle, you, you know, some side effects, but not not misery. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe a little, but it's not, it's not a strong predictor. No, I think if anything, it's actually, I would say someone who has a higher AMH and is expecting to get more eggs. Generally speaking, if you have more eggs growing, your ovaries are more swollen, your hormone levels get higher. Those people are, it's a good thing because they're going to get more, but it's also more likely to get side effects from there's more happening. If someone only has two or three eggs growing, not that different than a natural cycle. And so they probably are, are they're less likely to get side effects. Okay. Okay, so the next questions are also, I guess, for you, because what is the success of post-retrieval implantation and complications post-retrieval with the body, such as does it change the cycle? Sure. So 
I'll take the second part first. So post the cycle, if everything goes normal, like there's always, you know, God forbid, a chance that, that there's a complication, someone can get an infection afterwards, someone can have extra bleeding. So those things are rare, but but not zero. Um, uh, when I say rare, like we usually quote to people less than 1% of retrievals will have some issue that lingers, a meaningful issue that lingers later later afterwards. So it's 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 overall, the procedure is relatively quick, relatively straightforward and relatively safe and the complications are relatively rare. Um, if, assuming nothing, no complication happened, which is 99% of the time, then typically you get a period about, depending on which medications you use, anywhere from like five days to two weeks after the procedure. And your cycles usually just click back in. Maybe the next cycle after that is a little off, but for the most part, within a month or two, you're back on track. And there isn't usually any lingering uh, residuals of the fact that you've gone set through such a hormonal disturbance for more than a few weeks or maybe another cycle after that. So within a month or two, I would expect people to be pretty much totally back to normal in that sense. Um, the other question is a bigger question around success rates. And actually, I'm glad that someone asked that because I tend to say a little bit more um, than I did during the presentation. Because so what I was saying then is that we can give you a pretty good idea if you're going to get five eggs or 25 eggs and so forth. And the way to think about success rates, and people said, I said, what's the success rate of egg freezing? So the answer is you could take all the people ever did freezing, you know, and then try to use their eggs and say, okay, what percentage of them ever had a baby? And you get a number. And that would be a simple number. And by the way, that number is probably like somewhere around 30%. But that's not the most meaningful way of thinking about the question, because if you freeze your eggs when you're 28, like we said before, and you freeze, you know, 20 or 30 eggs, the chance of, of at least one of those eggs leading to a baby is like more than 90%. So tremendously high. And in fact, you probably get two or three or four babies out of 20 or 30 eggs if you freeze them that young and that many. Um, so in that scenario, the success rate is like over 90%. If you freeze eggs when you're in your 40s, and you only have two or three or four eggs to freeze, the success rate in that case, so it's not a lot of eggs, and most eggs when they're when they're taken out in a woman's 40s are already not healthy ones just by chance. The success rate may be only five or ten percent. And it's obviously pretty, pretty poor. And so if you put it all together, you might get an average of 30% or 40% or whatever it is, but it's really almost not useful to think of it in the abstract, but rather more helpful to think of it as based on my age, if I get a certain number of eggs, what would be the expected success rate? And then it's important for me to say, so what routinely happens after a woman finishes egg freezing is we try to then have a sort of a closure conversation or a follow-up conversation, okay, you came in, you're 38, and we expected you to, you know, your age was whatever. We said you're going to get our best guess between, you know, 8 and 14 eggs to freeze. You ended up getting 11 eggs to freeze, so things went normal. Now, going back to this original conversation, 38-year-old, 11, 38-year-old eggs, the chance of at least one of those becoming a baby is, let's say, something like uh, probably between 40 and 50%. You say, okay, well, I walked in the door saying I want to feel... I want to be able to sleep at night knowing that if I need these eggs, they're going to work. 40 to 50% is a nice ticket to success, but doesn't make me necessarily sleep soundly. So that's the point where the conversation becomes, could someone do another cycle? And it's easy for me to say it, not so easy to do it, right? Because it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money. You can talk about money also if you, if you I think I probably should say something. 
Um, but uh, so so we don't take it for granted that it's not, oh, just do another cycle. Like that's easier said than done. But I will say that statistically, about half of our patients do at least two cycles. So meaning a lot. And it's because of exactly what I'm saying, that if, especially for women in their late 30s or early 40s, unless they get a tremendous number of eggs and success rates, we can help them talk them through what's a realistic uh, what's a realistic calculation for how likely is it if I ever need these eggs that they're going to work, but it's often not so high. And so um, it is, of course, always a personal choice, but a lot of patients do and should consider doing another cycle to accomplish their goal of hedging their bets in a more powerful way. So um, that's my long-winded answer to what's the success rate type of thing. It really depends primarily on how old are the eggs at the time they're frozen and how many eggs you have frozen. Using those two data points, we can give you a rough answer. But but if you just take it in the abstract, it's like almost almost meaningless because you're just averaging in very different things together. Okay. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Is there a grading system or any genetic testing on eggs? Before That's a great question. So eggs cannot be tested, or there is no current technology that that can tell us if an egg is more or less likely to be a healthy one or more or less likely to work. There are a few groups that are, you know, investigating different technologies, artificial intelligence, and other things about staring at the egg to try to figure out if it's going to be a good one. But many of you may have heard there's such a thing as genetic testing uh, in the in the fertility world. An embryo, which is a fertilized egg, means that it's a, it's an egg that's been put together with sperm and divided into usually 100 or 200 cells. We can pluck off a few of those cells to get some of its DNA and test the embryos. So embryos are testable to verify if it's healthy. But eggs in the unfertilized state, we can't do that. If we pluck off a piece, we're going to kill the egg, and that's the end of the story. So that's an inherent challenge with egg freezing is that we can't, we can get a bunch and we can guesstimate, you know, if we say someone's in their mid-30s, about half the eggs are healthy, they got 10, probably about five good ones are in there. That's a safe-ish guess, but if you're lucky, maybe there's eight good ones in there. And if you're unlucky, maybe there's only two good ones in there. So there is this inherent uncertainty that we can't get past that we don't know how many of the eggs are actually good or if the eggs are good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to get anybody panicked or something. It's just giving me a different number. But as a rough guy, so um, an AMH of like a 30-year-old average AMH is, let's say, yeah, day three is probably better, um, a more pure result. If you get an AMH randomly, it might be influenced by the data cycle. Um, but 30-year-olds, like in the three neighborhood, maybe 3.5, maybe four, something three-ish or three plus. Mid-30s, you're talking about like two-ish plus or minus. At 40, the average AMH is one-ish. Over 40, the average is less than one-ish. So that should give you some general sense. Um, so some people say an image of less than one is bad. Sort of, but like if you're over 40, it's actually normal if your image is 0.9, right? It's normal for a 41-year-old that an image is less than one. It is low, but it's normal to be low. If you're 29 and an image of, of 0.9, that's that's very low for the age. And, and and you know, you can again you have to put it into context. Okay. There's another interesting question here. I think you have what to add to it. Uh, can it be a halachic issue with um shidokin? Uh, I'll try to address this. I find that men find it very comforting to know that a woman they're seeing, a young woman that they're seeing, does have fertility preservation. And becoming more and more, as this is becoming more and more, um, if I could use the term, mainstreamed, 
uh, more and more uh, boys are asking to be certain that the fertility was preserved. And they're very, very relaxed and calm to know that, that there is preservation. And just because a girl is a certain age does not mean that her uh, chances of building a family together is over. That's for sure. So um, the haunted issues, I would certainly um, say that if someone asks, I would be very comfortable to say yes. It's been it's been dealt with, and I think you find very positive answers. Uh, that anything to add? Um, not not really. Other than you know, I can't really speak to the halachic, halachic piece of it, but um, there's just nothing to debate if you if a woman, whatever age she is, but if she's in the late thirties or forties, if we're talking about the same story and one person has frozen eggs in somewhere in storage and one person doesn't, it's clearly an asset. And so it's almost like if, if any guy is hesitant, unless it's a lot of consideration put on the side, but if a guy is hesitant because oh I throws her eggs, that means that there's something wrong with her, like that's just the guy who doesn't get it, right? Like it, there's just no other side to the story of why frozen eggs would be a bad thing. So uh I certainly if if a guy understands the story or or whoever the shots on is they have to know that frozen egg is just a backup plan, which is a very valuable asset and there's no downside to it, basically. Um, and by the way, actually, to just attach one tiny thing, because it sort of relates to another question uh, in terms of coming back afterwards. So it's been studied and shown freezing eggs does not accelerate the loss of your eggs, right? Even if you get 20 or 30 eggs at a time, you, you don't have a, a lower egg supply afterwards. It's still a drop in the bucket to relative to what you have. Plus, whatever eggs grow in any given month, their eggs that would have been gone anyway. So it doesn't have a negative impact on the egg supply for the future. It's also been studied, actually, in the egg donor population. If you go through the stimulation and the retrieval process, does that in some way make it less likely for you to get pregnant naturally in the future? And the answer is no, it doesn't have any impact on your chances of natural fertility. So there's really no negative implications of going through the process on whether or not you'd be able to have children later on naturally or otherwise. Um, it should be a it should be a no-brainer basically. Yeah. I agree from what you just said. Yeah. So it doesn't it wouldn't like cause menopause to come sooner. It does not. It has that for two reasons. One is because again, even if you get 20 or 30, 40 eggs, the population of eggs, even if someone doesn't have a lot of eggs, is still many thousands. And so it's just not a meaningful change if you if you lost 20 of them out of you know five thousand or ten thousand, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Excuse me. The second reason is because, which is actually the, the the ultimate reason, is that the way the biology works is that women actually lose more than one egg every month. They ovulate one egg every month, but they actually lose, depending on, on which study you look at, probably at least 50, maybe 100, because eggs are dying all the time. So what the process does is it's, it salvages, it grabs out of the 50 or 100 that are destined to go away that month, it grabs 20 of them or whatever to take out and to freeze. But those 50 or 100 are going to be gone, whether they, you know, naturally one grows and the others all die. With medication, maybe 20 grow and the others die, but it, it end up in the same place either way. I also mentioned something about future partner when we get married. So even if Hashkafa is not something that's necessarily important to you right now, um, it might be something that's important to your future husband. So it's something that you want to have the best Hashkafa out there because that might be something important to him. Um, and you never know, you're, you might get something to come much firmer in three years from now and, and want to make sure that as long as you're doing it, you might as well do it the best way possible. Hashkafa is today of no charge. So you really have no, neither of the organizations charge for it. So you really have, obviously from the standpoint, you have what to gain, but 
Um, we definitely have nothing to do. Yeah, they're and they're happy to help, they're and they're the easy to work with, day. and they're in the lab every day. Yeah, and then anyway, it's easy basically. Next couple of questions seems to have been already asked. What are the AMH levels, and uh, how many cycles will be needed for a thirty-one or thirty-two year old? And the next question is very interesting. Um, is there a difference in how long the eggs were frozen? So um, Does it make a difference between two years and 10 years. I, mean, I do know that I've seen successful um, male cells being frozen and embryos being frozen for many, many years and successful births. I'm not familiar. I'm very curious to hear about egg freezing. So, yeah, thank you. So actually, I guess I'll take that one first. The duration of this, of the, of the time that they're in storage, that has been studied, again, mostly in the donor egg world, but it does not seem to matter, which is to say, once they're frozen, they don't change while they're in storage. So they've looked at eggs that have been stored for two years versus four years versus six years versus eight years, and they don't seem to have a different survival rate. They don't seem to have a different um, uh, potential to create a baby. So the duration of storage doesn't seem to matter. Keep in mind, of course, the person changes, right? So if you freeze your eggs today, whether you use them at 35 or at 40 or 45, a 45 year old pregnancy is more complicated than a 35 year old pregnancy. So it's not like it doesn't matter at all. But from the egg itself, it does not seem to matter. The longest reported case of an egg that was frozen and then successfully unfrozen was, I think, 14 years, if I'm not mistaken. It was just in the news. Uh, those are embryos for 30 years. Yeah, but those are embryos. So it's not the same thing. But for an egg, a frozen egg is 14 years. But that doesn't mean it's the maximum amount of time. It means it's the longest reported case. Um, the other questions, I think actually someone uh, specifically put down about an AMH that goes up, and what does that mean? So my main answer to that is AMH is not perfect. Meaning the 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 real reality that AMH is just a marker that we've learned to exploit to try to guesstimate an egg supply. Nobody's egg supply goes up, unfortunately. If AMH goes up, that usually means that either the previous uh, um, marker was artificially depressed or was it wrong, or that this one is artificially inflated. Meaning if let's say someone checked last year and it's 2.0 and then this year 2.5, it doesn't mean that you found extra eggs this year. It means that the 2.0 is wrong and the 2.5 is wrong. Now, wrong could mean like a lab error, or wrong could mean the, the circumstances in which it was tested. Again, if someone's on birth control or non birth control, um, if someone was nursing when they checked or not nursing, those things can sometimes influence the production of AMH in a way that makes the result less interpretable. Um, so the, the bet I would say is that it was 2.0 last year and 2.5 this year. I don't know, but it obviously didn't go down that much either. So that, that's reassuring. But 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 uh, but there's no I know up. It's it's either sort of, it's always very slowly down. Um, and then the other question was about um, how many eggs for a 31, 32-year-old. You know, that question can be asked about, about a 35-year-old, 38-year-old. And, and the, a key point that I want to just briefly highlight is that as much as people naturally like to hear cutoffs and, you know, I need X, right? Uh, the right age to do this is, is 35 or it's 33 or it's 37. Uh, the right number of eggs to freeze is 20 or 15. There's no right and there's no wrong. Remember, you can't take two or three or four or five or 10 eggs and put them together and make a baby. Nobody needs 10 to make a baby, right? I came from one, you came from one, any person, the successful one is the one, and all the others are not going to do anything for you. So it's really, in the end, model or whatever you want to call it, that's going to be the thing that drives. So you could freeze one egg and that you can have a baby from one, you can freeze 20 and none of them work. 
So, and it's important to keep in mind because some people, they do a cycle and they get, you know, 10 eggs or whatever they get, six eggs or 14 eggs. And they feel like, oh, I didn't get so many. And it's like, I got 20s. But the, because I didn't get, I wanted 20 and I didn't get 20. But that's wrong. Meaning it's nice to, 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 to aim for a lot, but it's not like if you don't get a certain number, it's nothing. It just, it's just mambo, right? So, okay, so you guys make tickets in, in, in the future game as you'd like. But uh, as long as you have one, there's a realistic chance I can become a baby. And we'd like to have more, but there's no minimum number that you need. And at the same time, it's also the other way, right? Like you get 20, that doesn't guarantee you a, a success either. So don't think that if you get to a certain number, then you have nothing to worry about. That's never really true either. It's really all a, a lesson in, I guess, uh, in, in we talk them, you know, <laughs> like we do our best and then we got to let go a little bit to, and, and, and Hashem is a plan. But, um, but the numbers are our best way to guesstimate the odds. And after that, you know, it's, it's, it really is out of our hands and there's muscle involved. The next question doesn't really make a difference halakhically, but it does make a difference for comfort. Is there a difference between the, the abdominal ultrasound and the internal ultrasound? If someone's uncomfortable to do the internal. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, an important question because it comes up all the time. So my answer is uh, the reality is that it's easier to see the ovaries clearly internally. Um, so that's why in general, and the way it's evolved is that the standard way of doing ultrasounds in the world of fertility is internally. Um, having said that, we have lots of egg freezing patients and lots of patients for whom an internal ultrasound would be either impossible or really, really difficult. Um, and we do abdominal ultrasounds all the time because usually it good enough is good enough, and usually we can see good enough. So basically, I would say that with the way I approach it is that if patients never had an exam before, so I usually would encourage them if they're open-minded to it to, to see if an internal exam is possible because depending on the way God made them, for some people, even if they're single and they, they, they think it's going to be impossible, it's actually not that impossible. Um, but if we try and it's not happening, then we just back off and then we do an, an abdominal exam. So I think it's worth trying because if you can get it done, it may be not a big deal. It's going to be a more, a more um, helpful picture. But don't stress if if you can't get the internal sound done, it's totally fine. And we do that routinely that we do monitor a whole cycle through external ultrasounds and we can deal with it. For the procedure, when you're under anesthesia, the eggs have to be retrieved transvaginally, but you're asleep. So usually the way we handle that is that, again, it's not usually some major issue, but we can stretch the tissue even just a centimeter and that's enough to allow for the ultrasound to go where it needs to go and to get the eggs in its... Again, you don't need a surgery to address it. It's just like a matter of stretching the tissue, barely, not even an inch, like barely even half an inch. So, so there are, it's very common, normal that people come in, they're either worried about it, and then they go through the cycle and either they do or they don't get the internal ultrasounds, but it's not something that should be an obstacle to like, that's not a stopping point. So you don't have to have an internal ultrasound or an internal exam to get through it. There's a furrowed brow in the, the back. Yeah. A woman's time is so, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define it. Yeah. And I'll let her make comment. I'd say to me, from the medical perspective, again, that's why I use those words specifically, because exactly what we do is we stretch the tissue. We don't like take a scissors and cut something. It's literally like, like soft tissue that can be stretched, so it just allows the, the probe to, to enter. That's how we usually deal with the, the procedural elements. Um, I would say you're asleep. Why not? 
Why? Not? <laughs> I'm saying dig the iron breaks. Break. Well, that'll that'll end up like a blood over the introduction. I said I don't see the halakhic issue with it. No, I don't see any halakhic issue with it. It's more common to be asked for a married couple who, who question who question whether or not this changes their 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 legal status. But uh, I don't see. I don't see what's the problem. Unless someone, which which I can understand, into anything invasive is invasive. You know, corona tests are invasive. People don't like it. Um, you know, uh, testing for 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 a strep throat is also uncomfortable and invasive. So um, certainly, uh, uh, I can understand the question, but it's not uh, any halakhic issue. Fair enough. Okay. I think we covered all the questions that were. We hope you enjoyed today's recording. Please take a moment to leave a rating or a review to help others find the podcast. We welcome you to support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. For feedback, please email podcast at mikvah.org. Have a wonderful day.